we've been practicing together now for pretty much a whole day and uh, many different experiences, many different things can happen and even what might seem to be a relatively short period of time. And to remember what we're here for, what we're interested in, in the midst of it all is sometimes not so easy. And I'd like to speak tonight about one of the core themes of spiritual practice that very much lies at the heart of what we're doing here. And this could be described or referred to in various terms. You could talk about it as the uh, spirit of letting go or we could refer to it in a single word as renunciation. And the importance, the significance of this aspect of our practice, this foundation in fact of spiritual life, is drawn from or arises from the recognition and the understanding that it is the tendency we have to attach take hold of, to grasp onto, or to resist and struggle with our experience, that is actually the core or root cause of the suffering, the dissatisfaction, the sense of limitation and the sense of bondage that we experience. And this tendency, this habit, it seems often compulsion to grab, to grasp, to hold, to keep, to want or in its other form of expression, to resist, to avoid, to deny, to suppress, to try to get rid of. Different aspects of our experience that we find difficult in the latter case, or that we find attractive or enjoyable with regard to the former expression of this tendency. And that countering this tendency is the capacity we have to let go, to let be, to release the, at times it seems, compulsive grip that we try, that we seek to hold our life with. This letting go is the basis of peace and the basis of freedom. And yet we live in a condition, or in a, in a world, both an outer world and probably for most of us an inner world, in which one of the strongest views or perceptions of our life and how to live it expresses itself along the lines of some variation on the idea that happiness and satisfaction comes through materialist acquisition, possession or control of our lives. And materialism is something which perhaps many people involved in the spiritual life might feel that they have already understood the emptiness of and moved on from. And I think probably for most of us this is true to a certain degree. And yet there may equally be further degrees of this tendency that we 
need to understand, that we need to explore. And in fact we could perhaps see that there are three primary levels that we can observe in the way we enact or have at least the opportunity to enact a a materialistically oriented way of behaving which is, as I said, a way of behaving that suggests or that is founded on the idea that happiness and satisfaction come through getting and having through controlling and manipulating or through avoiding our experience in some particular form or configuration that best suits us. And in terms of getting material possessions, you know, probably I don't expect that many of you, if any of you, still believe that having the right house or the right car or the right clothes is really going to do it for you. I mean, sometimes we're tempted to believe that, but probably most of us realise that this isn't the deepest truth. And yet often what what happens and what, what occurs in that is when we start to move away from the more material realm, we find ourselves drawn to the realm of experience. Rather than things, we look more for experiences to do it for us. And, of course, these can be in the rather gross realms of uh, sort of entertainment and distraction that uh, are much, very much a part of the conventional world. And again, that we might realise are somewhat empty, although we might enjoy, you know, the entertainment of the, the um, sort of media, the film and television and all of that. We don't expect it really to transform our lives. <coughs> but the more subtle inner experiences of heart and mind and body that we might often associate with meditation, at least in our, in our hopes or our dreams, to feel sort of calm and peaceful or to have some blissful heart-opening experience or just a body that's sort of light and pleasurable. These kind of experiences we can often find ourselves seeking or a mind that's really concentrated and focused. I mean that sounds like it's in line with what meditation's all about. But surely if I get that, then it's going to really make a difference. We think to ourselves, I imagine some of the time, And yet, all these experiences, both the difficult and the enjoyable that we encounter in our meditation, they don't, and they can't, ultimately give us satisfaction. Because they're changing. They're moving. They're constantly shifting and evolving into something else. And yet, sometimes it seems we feel compelled or driven to pursue experiences, certain conditions of being that we feel will be more fulfilling. And some of them, of course, have their value and their benefit. But they equally have their limitations. And the third level of materialism we see is the the process whereby we are seeking to become someone. We're trying to create ourselves in some particular way or shape or form <coughs> that conforms to an ideal or a model or a concept that we somehow believe or 
attribute the power of therefore being a place that we can land, that we can arrive, that will be our final destination and a place of eternal comfort and ease. When all the sort of the, the dark recesses of our psyche have had the light shined on them and all the, the hard edges have been rubbed off and all the rather quirky personality traits have been sorted out and actually when we're, you know, full of wisdom and compassion and bliss and we've become something holy perhaps or whatever it might be that we can sometimes be involved in a process of becoming in this way trying to become something that is really not that different from what we could call spiritual material and when we invest anything whether a material object whether an experience or whether a sense of who we are when we invest that or who we want to be when we invest that with the power to make us happy or to give us lasting satisfaction then we are investing unwisely we're investing in something that won't actually pay to use the metaphor of investment won't actually pay any return There's a story of a uh, character from the Sufi teaching tradition, which is a mystical element of uh, Islam, or one mystical element of it, in which uh, this character, known as uh, Mullah Nasruddin, is both a wise man and a fool, though one suspects his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And one day, Nasruddin was uh, in, in the evening, late in the evening, he was found by a friend on the footpath at the, the pavement, if you're in England, I guess, um, or sidewalk if you come from North America, uh, footpath in New Zealand, so I'm just translating here. Um, he was found on the footpath outside his house, scrabbling in the dirt and the rubbish and the stones under a lamppost, and his friend saw him there and said, Nasruddin, Muller, what are you doing? Nazarin replied, he said, I'm looking for my key. I've lost the key to my house. Can you help me find it? And so the, the man gets down on his hands and knees and helps him look. And they're searching and there's some kind of unsavory things lying down there that Nazarin's friend sort of pokes at them, looks under them, and, you know, shifts around. And after a little while, not really having any success. And the, the friend is getting a little sort of weary of this. He turns to Nazarin and he says, Muller, we've looked all over this area. I can't see your key anywhere. Are you sure you dropped it here? Nazareth looked at him and he said, Oh no, I dropped it in the garden, but the light is much better here. It's like we tend to look for satisfaction where we think it's going to be the easiest to find, where it seems, according to what everyone tells us, the most light is, so to speak. Like this is where it's going to happen for us. But it doesn't. It doesn't do that. And this is something we really need to acknowledge for ourselves. We need to understand this very deeply. Because if we don't, then we'll really continue to be compelled, consciously or unconsciously, 
by those same tendencies. The whole process of chasing after one thing or trying to chase away another. Looking for the key to the heart of our lives, to our true home, which is peace and happiness. Looking for it in a place where it simply won't be found. And interestingly enough, to extend the the image of the story, I think we actually all know that it's not really there when we're looking there. But somehow we keep doing it. But that's perhaps another topic. For now, just to contemplate, to reflect on what we're doing. We could bear in mind what we're doing here on this retreat. We could bear in mind what Jack Cornfield once said, a well-known senior teacher from America. He once said, some people think coming to a retreat is like going to the corner store, coming to get all your goodies or your essential sort of shopping. He says, this is not going to the store. Coming to the retreat is like going to the rubbish dump. You're here to leave things behind that you don't need, that are just weighing you down. And to understand our practice in this way, to understand that satisfaction isn't found through chasing one thing, through avoiding another. Whatever they might be, whatever your own particular thing that you feel you must have or that you can't live with is, different for each of us, of course, But that tendency, it seems, is rather universal. To actually understand that this does not serve us and that actually satisfaction is only truly found by letting go into the the truth, into the spiritual dimension of our life that is here and now. So meditation practice, which we're engaged in, at least it appears that that's what we're engaged in, um, one was to look and listen to what was going on. And sometimes one might wonder on the inside whether meditation is going on and if it is exactly what is that process. One level which we've already referred to is, is a process whereby we're training the heart and mind, learning just to be here, as we've said. And how we go about that is really important. Because sometimes it feels or it can seem like us that we have to compel ourselves to meditate and we have to compel ourselves to conform to what the instructions have told us we should do and how we should experience our meditation. And we we come rather harshly or with a lot of hardness to that process, hardness towards ourselves often. Somehow trying to compel our mind, our heart, our body to fit in to the model of what we think should have been happening. And even though we've actually been told that it doesn't have to be that way, somehow we hear the instructions and we internalise them as this must happen like this. If it's happening like that, it's bad, it's wrong, it's no good. And often that's my fault, I can't do it, I'm hopeless, this is crazy, what are they talking about? And all the kind of reactions that can arise from it. Learning to be where we are is like training a puppy. We need to actually give it a clear direction, a clear, firm intention, and yet be really gentle. Like you imagine a small puppy. If you don't train it, it 
it, it'll really have an unhappy life because it won't know where and when to go to the toilet. It won't be able to follow. It'll get lost or it'll get itself into trouble. It needs training. It's no favour to a, to a young puppy just if it's going to grow up in the human world. It does it no favours to just let it run around doing whatever it likes until eventually it either hurts someone or gets hurt itself. So it needs training. But equally, if you try to train it, you think, you know, okay, puppy, heal. Maybe spend a moment sniffing your heel and then wanders off. You still ask it with a stick and thrash it and say, I told you to heal, come back. What's it going to do? Is it going to want to come back? Is it going to think following this guy is a good idea? Probably not. And yet if you see that the puppy's wandered off and you say, oh, that's where you are. Oh, wondered where you got to. Come back here. That's right, this is the place you can be. There's space for you here. You just follow after me. That the mind learns to follow the intention we establish in that spirit with a balance of clarity and yet firmness that is equally gentle. And in this process, we are again and again asked to let go. We are again and again cultivating this capacity for what we could call renunciation, for releasing the hold, the grip, the grasping that we form as the basis of our relationship to what is happening. So much of the time when we're not conscious, when we're not aware, when we're not awake, which is why we're cultivating being awake, so that we can actually release the grip and therefore release ourselves. Because in fact it isn't life that gets caught when we grasp at it. Life is free by its nature and what could we do about that? It's ourself that gets caught when we grasp. And this, of course, is of interest to us if we wish to be free, to learn what it means to let go. So we're asked again and again to let go of the thinking mind. We see how many times it arises with such remarkable enthusiasm. It seems, at times with an incredible, um, it seems, ingenuity or originality to come up with these remarkable new thoughts and ideas to tempt us away from being present. And other times it seems to be remarkably unabashed by repeating to us things we've thought a million times before, as though it was brand new. And we know that it's not, but it still comes out like that in the mind. This process of dwelling, of getting drawn into, of engaging with the thinking mind, is again resting upon or underpinned by an investment in the idea or a belief in the idea that the intellectual mind and its processes is somehow going to be the source of satisfaction for our life or is somehow going to bring us to the solutions that we need to transform our experience. And that's why we give it so much authority and have done much of our life. So of course when we start to give it less authority, sometimes it reacts, it rebels. It's like the first time we asked the puppy to heal and not just run around as it has done for the first weeks of its life. Maybe it doesn't like that. Maybe it yaps or snarls or whatever. Or goes and hides and we can't find it for ages. And we wake up, at the, you know, the bell rings and the last thing we knew we were just sitting down for the meditation. We think, what happened? 
and yet that, that process of being lost in the mind if we simply see what's occurring and not reacting to that fact not judging or blaming it that in itself is a letting go letting go of our reactivity to what is occurring to whether or not it fits with our idea of what should be happening and letting go equally of the just the thinking itself which provides a, an appearance of sort of certainty an appearance of security an appearance of being in control that is of course completely false but nonetheless very attractive and we're again and again asked to let go when we react towards the difficult the things that occur the experiences in our body of discomfort or tiredness when we see how strongly we want these things not to be so even if it's just a little twinge, let alone something that really hurts. And sometimes we experience such things. Or if we feel in our heart something that's unsettling or difficult to be with. Or our mind is racing and busy and crazy and confused. And sometimes all three of them going on at once. And yet learning just to acknowledge that, oh, this is what's happening. And let it be. Understanding that when we talk about letting go in this context, it sounds good because it sounds like things should go away. That's not what it means. It's simply to let it be and to trust our capacity to be present in the very midst of this. And this is an expression of renunciation, of trusting the way things are, rather than giving the authority to the movements from within us, the conditioned responses, of grasping towards and pushing away. To let go of the pursuing, the indulging of pleasant experience. Whether it be fantasy, you know, sometimes you wonder how I got there in the middle of this big story. And of course the stories often start off looking like fun and all too easily descend into something not quite so entertaining and enjoyable. But we wonder how we got there. Often it's just simply being with the breath is kind of ordinary. Not a lot going on. So the mind decides, well, I think I want something more exciting and proceeds to create it. It doesn't send you a warning to say it's about to do this. It just doesn't. And we find ourselves there in the middle of it. Sometimes we think, oh, this is nice. I'll just see what happens. And it's only at some point later we realise there's a kind of a, an emptiness in it. There's something in it that really takes us further away from the aliveness and the vitality from the realness of our life and of course we can be speaking for other pleasant experiences you know sometimes we uh, find ourselves standing in the sunshine outside and it's kind of like I'm just being mindful of those warm sensations on my skin you know just noticing what that feels like great practice and then at some point it's like oh I don't remember that beach holiday in the south of France. Oh, that was nice. And I met that person. Hmm, they were interesting. Yeah. And then this, poof, and we're not there anymore. Like we've fallen asleep in the comfort, indulging it. Not to say we can't stand in the sun and enjoy it, or enjoy the food, or whatever it is that we might be touched by. Peaceful states of mind. 
possibly for someone, for a few moments, sometimes a day, it happened that it was relatively quiet and peaceful. One thinks, oh, nice. Of course, we can be touched, nourished by these moments. But if we think, I've got it, how can I keep it? Even the very thought itself undermines, shakes and erodes the quality that we were enjoying. Letting it go, letting it be. In fact, all of our practice is ultimately in the service of this. And in the teachings, it's recognized that there are four core or primary areas in which we find ourselves attracted towards and entangled with, either grasping for or pushing away, depending on what is going on. And it's useful to actually just reflect on them, to see where we hold and where we need to let go. The first and perhaps most obvious is the realm of sense pleasure. We like the enjoyable feelings and pleasant experiences. We don't like the ones that are unpleasant and difficult. And there can be like a sort of a, a hunger that we encounter looking for something to satisfy us, wanting something that's kind of somehow going to fill an emptiness or a lack or an absence that we perceive and interpret as somehow problematic, as somehow needing a response from ourselves to fill it up. I mean, did you notice at any time your mind today turning towards the thought of, if only I had this, if only it wasn't like that, if it hasn't happened today, maybe you'll notice it tomorrow, maybe not. But it's like there's this very pervasive tendency of the mind to, to look around and to latch onto something and to make that something important. Either important because it's a problem and I need to get rid of it, get rid of it or important, significant because it's going to offer me what I want. Or it's going to offer me something. And it kind of starts to stand out. It starts to, you know, sometimes it's uh, sort of the, uh, towards the latter part of the morning or the latter part of the evening, the meal time starts to ring in our consciousness. Like, ah, the meal time's coming soon. Mm. And somehow it means something to us. Pleasant food, of course, lovely. But to see that momentum towards and what it does to the quality of our presence, to the depth of our connection to where we are, or even just to the possibility of remembering that we're trying to be mindful, let alone actually being able to. Because it's so easily lost, isn't it? We think we're clear in our intention, we know what we're trying to do, and yet whole great big parts of our inner process seem to disregard it completely. And yet getting to know how that happens is part of our practice. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong or it's not working or it's you know hopeless. It's actually to learn to see what goes on. This we need to do. And with regard to that, renunciation, letting go, doesn't mean that we don't engage with our experience or that we're distant from, separate from. It means we don't pursue, we don't hold on to. It doesn't mean we have to reject it. It doesn't mean we have to push it away. So we can actually 
receive nourishment, we can receive joy from that which is sweet to us, pleasurable to us, from the content with the wor- contact with the world. But we don't push away that which we find difficult or try and maintain or sustain that which is enjoyable beyond its own natural life, beyond its own natural cycle of existence. And, you know, have you, have you observed or have you noticed, you can look to see how much of the time we're lost in our mind it's preoccupied with getting a pleasant experience or avoiding an unpleasant one. And avoiding or trying to sort out an encounter with a difficult neighbour, family member, employer, employee, whatever, workmate. How much time we might spend trying to figure out how we're going to deal with this situation. Often because there's something difficult in it we just wish to avoid. To see what drives us in that way is to have the opportunity to begin to let it go. The second field of attachment in the tradition teachings of the Buddha, these are referred to as the four great attachments, which could sound like it's you know, a great idea to be attached, you know, great attachment. But I think it's actually meant more in terms of vast, big, sticky and challenging. Um, so not to be pessimistic with it, but also to acknowledge from that that one isn't just about to snap one's fingers and let it go. I mean, in fact, in regard to that, there's a story I heard that was told by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who uh, I'm sure most of you heard some of, and uh, a great spiritual leader and uh, practitioner. And uh, He told this story at a conference which a friend of mine was attending who related it to me, and uh, apparently some years ago he was at, uh, His Holiness was at a conference in New York, and he was staying in a hotel in one part of the town, and every day was driven to the conference. And it just so happened that the, the, the journey took him down a street where all these shops that sold all sorts of electrical and electronic goods were. And it was that sort of that area of New York, the electrical sort of sort of neighbourhood or whatever. And if you know anything of uh, His Holiness, you perhaps have heard that he has a sort of a fondness for electronic and electrical gadgets and he used to take radios apart and put them together as a teenage boy. And so he related how every day and every morning and every evening he would be driven down the street. He said he, he looked out through the window of his, of his cab at, at these windows filled with electrical appliances and goods and machineries and mechanisms and gadgets and gizmos. And he said, my eyes grew wider and wider every time we went past. And you know, by the end of the week, I found myself desperately wanting all of them. And I didn't know what they were. And it's kind of, I think, as well as being rather sweet and uh, humorous, it's also rather reassuring because His Holiness has many decades of sustained and intensive practice and cultivating the heart and mind and uh, continues to do several hours of practice every morning before, early in the morning before undertaking his very full sort of duties and schedules. And uh, if his mind still does this, then probably we're going to see our mind doing that too. But can we see it with lightness? Can we see it with understanding? 
He didn't say that he therefore went out and bought all those things. And we don't need to buy into the story if we can see it. It's just the way the mind tends to move when it's left to its unconscious habits. Just as we can see a puppy runs off, runs about, digs up the flower garden, chases the rabbit, gets scared by the cat. If you let it go running around, that's what happens to the puppy. Of course, that's how it is. So, that, again, coming back to the attachment, four great attachments, the second realm of attachment is the realm of rites and rituals. And this, I think, can be most usefully understood as the idea that we project onto something that we do, that this will do it for me. <coughs> so rather than a thing that's going to do it for me, uh, an experience or an object that's going to do it for me, that's pleasurable or whatever, or flattering, it's actually a thing we do. And actually, I mean, it could be, um, it could be meditation, actually, rather. Um, significant to contemplate this one. Sometimes we think, I just need to do, follow the instructions and it'll all happen. I don't have to do anything. It's just, you know, you just plug into this sort of thing and in a kind of mechanical way I do this, this will happen and then I'll be free. And it's true at one level, actually, we don't have to do this. It is something that happens by itself. And yet, if we project onto it the idea that we don't have to do anything and it's all going to happen for us, it loses something of its aliveness. It actually needs us to stay engaged. We can't actually release it in that way to say, it's going to do it for me. Because that is to say it's separate from ourselves. And we can't really do that in a useful way. But of course, the you know, more obvious things one has heard of is, you know, sort of, we think that, you know, bowing every time is going to, bowing every day, which bowing can be a wonderful practice, really profound way of exploring what it means to uh, let go of our self-centeredness and our pride and to actually honour and exalt even those things that we truly value. It can be a wonderful practice. And equally it can just be the idea that if I bow three times every morning then I'll go to heaven or I'll be free or I'll, you know, whatever. And of course that's empty and we might know that. But there are more subtle ways that we kind of pick up this thing we pick up the sense of someone's going to do it for me or it's going to happen for me. There's a, there's a story of a, a Zen master having a dialogue with a, a Jesuit priest and uh, he's talking about the, uh, the commitment and the integrity that's involved in sustaining meditation practice just as we're doing and really having to pay attention and make an effort in that way that we're asked to. And the, the Jesuit priest responds to him and says, but isn't there any place in your, in your understanding, in your practice for the idea of grace that, you know, that, that God will take care of all of this that you, you seek for, that you desire? And the Zen master looked at him and he said, yes, we, we have a concept of grace in Zen, but from where we see it, God has already done his part. And we need to meet that which we could call grace, that which we could call that sense of things that we don't need to make it happen ourselves. And yet somehow we need to engage with it very authentically, with a real vitality, a real aliveness. We can't sit back and hope it's all going to happen for us. 
and yet nor can we force it to happen according to our schedule or our timetable. And there's a letting go in both of those elements, a letting things be. And it's kind of interesting, I was reflecting earlier how how quickly we pick these things up. And I've noticed often, and uh, you know, some people, and myself, this, this is a rather meaningful gesture, kind of picked up in Asia, I guess, and uh, one sees it in monasteries and places. It's a gesture of respect, as, out, as bowing, of veneration, of honouring, and that. And sometimes people aren't quite sure, do I have to do that too? Is that part of the deal, you know? Will the meditation work if I don't do it? And then we kind of wonder how to deal with this whole idea of rituals and, uh, and that. With regard to that, it's fine to do it if you find it meaningful and equally fine not to. So no, again, attachment to a form there. I'm not sure it's been happening. I haven't really looked that carefully here, but often what happens in this realm is sometimes when I come and sit, I put my hands here. Sometimes when I come and sit, I put my hands here. And I notice on retreat sometimes that if I always have my hands here, then most of the people, I'm not sure this is happening here, but a lot more of the people end up with their hands up here. If I put my hands here, a lot more of the people end up with their hands here. And I actually have no idea that one is better than the other. I certainly don't suggest that. But it's like we kind of pick things up even without noticing it. Now, none of you may have done this, but it does seem to happen. It's kind of like we kind of still think, oh, that's how you do it. As though somehow this is going to make the difference for us. We wonder, should it be like this? Should it be like this? Teacher's not very consistent. I don't know what to do. <laughs> do I have to wait till he arrives and see what he's doing? Is it after lunch you do it like this? <laughs> and all the preoccupation with thinking which one is going to be right. In some ways it's an expression of that attachment to thinking this sort of thing is going to make the difference when it's not. The third realm of attachment is the realm of views and opinions. The ideas we have about how things are. The demands we have to know things that are really speculations that we really can't know about the future or about metaphysical concepts of is the world real or is it not real? Is there life after death? Is there not life after death? These kind of ideas we can think about if we have a view about it, we can often be so certain of it. I know how things are. How difficult it is to be challenged when someone says, the way you think, see things isn't the way I see things. Kind of, not suggesting it for this retreat, but it's kind of an interesting thing to look at the newspaper you buy, decide which side of the political spectrum it is, and buy the one on the far opposite side and read it, and see what your response is. Because we tend to kind of read the news and hear the perspectives that kind of make us feel okay because they sort of reflect the way we see it anyway and kind of make us feel like, oh yeah, we were right, I agree with them, yeah. Whereas those ones, they don't know what they're talking about and I'm not even going to read it. Now, this isn't a sort of a current affairs education, but um, <laughs> it's interesting as a reflection on how we kind of hold very tightly to a worldview or a way of looking at things. And there's often wisdom in our perspectives, not to discount them but how we're very threatened and challenged if they're, if they're challenged. My sister was visiting um, the last few days and I haven't really seen a lot of her since we were teenagers. Our family sort of split up at that time and we've lived in different parts of the globe mostly. 
And she was telling us a story about something she remembered me having done or spoken about when I was a teenager, you know, 12, 13 years old. I had absolutely no memory of this thing. It's about not liking spinach and finding some way to avoid having to eat it. And it seemed totally foreign and alien to me that this was being said, this is what happened to me. It was really just an idea, it was kind of irrelevant, but it was interesting to see how strongly the mind did not want this to be so. Now, actually, I've got no idea whether she was remembering it wrong or I was remembering it wrong. Certainly one of us. Maybe more likely. Um, Just that sense of how tightly we hold to our remembrance of how things were. You you talk to two people who are at the same place at the same time and ask them what happened. How many versions of the story do you get? Sometimes two or three. To let go of our ideas about the way things are. Not to dismiss the understanding and the wisdom we have, but to not hold it too tightly and to be willing to question our interpretations, particularly of our experience. So often what comes up when we're meditating, something happens, you know, we space out or we get lost or something going on in our body and very quickly the thought is, this means that. My knee's hurting. This means that I shouldn't be meditating like this. My knee's hurting. This means that probably I'm going to do something wrong. It's going to hurt me. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be injured. I'm going to be carried out here on a stretcher, you know. And it's like we believe it in that moment. It's the truth. Or the stories about how we can't meditate or how we struggle. All these ideas that just pop into our minds. And often later we find ourselves thinking something quite different. The pain goes away. We're relaxed. We're steady. And we're thinking, this is great. This is really the right thing to be doing. And we believe that as an absolute truth. Rather than just another idea that's popped into our mind. When we don't hold on to our views and opinions about the way things are, which the Buddha likened to a thicket, to a fetter, to a like closely growing bushes and trees that you can't make your way through. Spirit, the spiritual journey is often likened to a path. And when we go off into, when we get caught, when we take hold of views and opinions, it's like we go off into a side path that becomes impenetrable. We can't see our way through because we lose the sense of possibility and openness that our practice really depends upon. It's openness to new possibilities. To not know what this moment is offering and presenting us. To not know what the next breath will be like because we don't know. And therefore in not presuming we know, in not believing that this breath will be like the next one, And not presuming that this breath will even come. Because one day the next one won't. And in that moment, if we were to happen to know that this is the last one, it would probably be a lot more interesting. We probably wouldn't have a lot of trouble paying attention to it if we happened to know that this one was the last one. And that sense that if we don't know what is right now. We don't know what it is to breathe. We're not sure. We're not so sure what it means to be alive. What it means to take a step on the ground. Or to sit 
a hot, sweet cup of tea. It just comes out fresh. It's kind of like the letting go of our ideas actually allows us quite naturally to discover ourselves, to rediscover ourselves right where we are. It's not like we have to make a journey to that location. We're there. And that is what is what occurs when we let go. It's not that we then go somewhere else. We simply discover ourselves where we are. And this is what we're learning to do again and again. The fourth realm, the fourth great attachment that the Buddha spoke of is the attachment to the idea of who we are. And in this way it's a particular expression of our attachment to views and opinions. And it's also something deeper. It's something about the way we orient ourselves in the world that assumes that we are apart from, or other than, or separate to everything else, which is. And this idea that is based on our history and our personality and our experiences and the qualities that we attribute to ourselves The sense of who I am, the sense of what I have, or what I will become. This is something that we're asked to really look at, to see the process of trying to become someone better, someone good, someone enlightened, an enlightened self. I'd like to become that. This is an invitation, and we'll speak more about this during the day. But it's just an invitation to question again a little bit our sense of our belief in who we are or that we are what we think we are. There's a little lapel badge or button you can get that says meditation. It's not what you think. It's kind of got a lot of wisdom in it. It's quite a few levels and it's equally applicable to our, our sense of who we are. It isn't what we think, it is. And our preoccupation with it is with who I am, with where I'm going, with where I've come from, with my past, with my future, with the effect on me of all of this. This is somewhere where again we find ourselves lost, we find ourselves drawn into. And so the significance and the value there, certainly in terms of what I'm speaking of at this time, is simply just to acknowledge these places of getting caught in our practice. We don't need to analyse them too much or become worried because they're occurring, but just to see, ah, when I'm caught, it's somehow caught in the field of grasping for sense pleasure. Or it's because something that's happened has challenged my view of how things are, or my sense of who I am just to watch what happens in this process, to let go, to let go of these graspings, these habits of holding on, these attempts to somehow configure our world, our inner experience and our sense of who we are, to configure it in accordance with the model that we hold or that we seek for. This is a really painful process that actually doesn't lead us to the place that it seems to promise it will bring us to. And if anything, in fact, it takes us away from it. So learning to let go, 
which we express simply in coming back to where we are having seen what occurs in this moment we re-engage with the next moment which is new in this moment again it is actually not some deprivation it's not about separating ourselves from that which nourishes us which uplifts us which brings wholesomeness into our lives sometimes the word has this you know renunciation it sounds like some hard austere self-hating or self-negating process it's not that at all one of my teachers would say letting go is an act of compassion towards ourselves understanding that in letting go of our holding on to and resisting we actually release the contraction that binds us and that equally limits and blocks our capacity to contribute to the welfare of others letting go brings joy and ease and peace there's a a story of a Sufi master who lived in a in a center with many disciples and followers and he was very strict and he was very anti-materialist and it was very austere there they had no heating they had very minimal food and very simple and they had to engage in disciplines and practices throughout the day and it was really a committed place of practice and the, the master would speak again and again of the importance of of letting go and of doing without and yet all the people there noticed how every Saturday he would go down to the village market he would spend all day amongst the, the vast numbers of things all the delicacies, the foods, the, the, um, the different actors and artists performing and all the different things that could be bought and sold and bartered and all the activity and hustle and bustle of the market and after some time and noticing this they, they asked him, said, Master you speak to us so much of letting go of renunciation and yet you spend all day on Saturday in the market we don't understand he looked at them and he said you know I go to the market every Saturday because it gives me great joy to see all the things that I'm happy without to realize that all the things that we thought we might have needed to have or get rid of in fact we do not need to have or get rid of in order to discover true happiness in order to realize peace to let ourselves more and more fully arrive where we are to learn to abide in this moment in the living present experience that is in itself alive and dynamic and free this is our practice we don't need to ask ourselves how well we're doing we don't need to measure whether we're very concentrated or for how many breaths we were present or for how long we were absent or how many times it's not necessary to be too concerned with that what we're asked to do is align ourselves with the intention to be conscious and awake to do our best to let go of the different forces and energies within us and around us that seem to draw us away and yet 
in our willingness to see that this process occurs equally to understand what is going on here and how can we be in the midst of that to recognize we have this remarkable ability to let go to let be to abide in the way things are quite simply and naturally and this is our practice supported by the meditation by the tools by the teachings by our own slowly growing and blossoming wisdom and compassion a Tibetan master once said renunciation is to accept what comes into our life and to let go of that which leaves our life perhaps this is our whole practice Imagine what this would be. A life lived at peace and in freedom, in the midst of everything. And this is the vision of our practice. This is the invitation of this moment, right here and now. Can we just sit quietly together for a few moments, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.